you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. We're starting a new sermon series. We started last week looking at an introduction, an overview of the gospel, and looked at three things, the, uh, the message, the mission, and the means, and how Jesus is, uh, enables us to do those things. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab a Bible. There's some in, under the pew in front of you. Uh, and to follow along, Acts is in the New Testament, which starts with the book of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then if you hit Romans, you went too far. But that's Acts, the gospel, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. There's this phenomenal uh, thing that happens in a group setting. And it happens all the time. It happens uh, in funny ways. A lot of people use it for uh, pranks or jokes uh, to strangers on the streets. Uh, in some ways, it happens in bad ways as well, but it's called herd mentality. Herd mentality happens when uh, a group of people actually begins to influence the outcome, how people behave in all sorts of different ways. We see this all the time. Uh, every once in a while, I'll see a, a short little clip or a video on, on, uh, on social media where there might be a person who stands, just stands. But they look like they're standing in line. And then suddenly somebody else lines up behind them, and then somebody else, and then somebody else. And then someone finally gets the idea of asking, what are we lining up for? And that's the prank. Right? What a way to make you feel like a fool, Right? All these people standing, and it can be funny, and it's amazing, it happens. And as I was reading through Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, I was reminded of that very thing. As the disciples spend time with Jesus, and Jesus gives them a mission, and then he gives them the means to accomplish that mission, they kind of just stand there at the end, staring up at the sky, until two angels come and say, hey, look, don't you have a mission? And then they go and they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1, verses 1 to 11, we see the last words that Jesus says to his disciples, followed by the immediate reaction of the disciples themselves. And Jesus doesn't leave them there. He actually gently moves their attention back to what he has called them to do, the mission that he has put them on. So if you have your Bibles with you, Acts chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 11. The word of the Lord says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, for the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as he saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for today. Uh, I've been reminded over and over again of the grace that you poured out on us, on your chosen people, by sending your son Jesus Christ to die. And here in Acts, we see the outcome of that. The mission that your son has given us. So Lord, as we come to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, God, there's no way that I can make this turn out well on my own, so by your spirit, Lord, will you do that? Will you use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost? Amen. In verses 1 to 6, we see Jesus begins to teach his disciples. In verse 1, as we talked about last week, this book was written by a person, a man named Luke, who was a follower of Jesus, but it was funded by a man named Theophilus. Luke wrote his first book called The Gospel According to Luke as that first kind of uh, uh, section, the the first volume of a multi-volume series. And this is the follow-up, Acts is the follow-up of how the gospel will begin to shape the early church. And as we saw, Theophilus was probably a Christian who supported Luke in that writing of the first time. And in that first volume in Luke, the gospel of Luke, he says that he was dealing with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And a nicer way of putting that is all that Jesus did and taught. Luke specifically looked at that which means that his book was focusing on Jesus' action in that first volume, right before Jesus would ascend, before he would go up to heaven like we just read. Luke was focusing on what Jesus did. But now in the second volume, it is about what happens after Jesus' ascension, how the gospel shaped the early church and how that flows out. In verse 2, we see Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit. I think we really struggle with the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we think that he's like a lesser God, but there is only one God in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Luke gives him a central role right here in Acts. It's through the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives commands to his chosen followers. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that all that we will read over the next few months comes to happen right here as God uses his chosen people. And when you read through Acts, you will see this word come out. God has chosen, in this case, the 12 disciples, soon to be Matthias, for a specific act of service or ministry. And God continues to use his chosen people as a means to spread the message about Jesus. So God is the one who provides salvation and the means of salvation. His means is his people, as we saw last week, who he has chosen for the task to spread this good news of Jesus Christ, because it is good news. We took time today to reflect upon that. One of our elders, Peter, talked to us and taught us about why this is good news. 
that wretched sinners like you and I could even be here in the same room? Here, in verse 3, as Jesus continues on, as Luke continues on, he says, Jesus, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering for many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And this is important. This is incredibly important. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing matters. So here, Luke makes a very clear point that Jesus is spending time with his disciples, giving them many proofs that he's alive. What is a proof that you're alive outside of walking around? Probably eating. Eating some food. I still remember that Casper movie from back in the 90s. And here's Casper and his, I don't know, his cousins or whatever they were. I can't even remember anymore. And they're eating and all the food's falling out of them. But here Jesus is giving proof that he is indeed alive. He is no longer dead. And this is important. Even in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Like, how bad is that? This is why Luke spends time to specifically say Jesus gave many proofs that he is alive. He is not in the grave anymore. He has risen. He has risen indeed. It is important because 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 22 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, we just learned about, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Jesus' resurrection and his appearance after that are, are important because this act gives no shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah and Savior that was prophesied from Genesis, which we learned about today, in all the prophets. Without a shadow of doubt, he is the Savior. It was important for the disciples also to see that Jesus became that Jesus was alive because they would be the ones to go out as a witness of this. So for 40 days, Jesus hangs out with his disciples, giving them many proofs, showing them all about how he is alive, hugging, touching, kissing on the cheek, all of those wonderful things, having many potlucks together. And in those 40 days, Jesus focuses on two things. The one is what we just talked about. He gives proof of the disciples that he is alive. It's pretty hard to prove that someone is dead when you're sitting beside them. Dead people begin to not be very nice. But here, Jesus is alive. The disciples aren't witness of some sort of transcendent event, but only to things that they saw and heard while Jesus was on earth. And they go out after these 40 days, plus the three years that they've already spent with him, and they take what they've learned and what they saw, and they simply go out telling what they've learned and what they saw. They were witnesses. They didn't have to come up with some hardcore great argument that was ironclad. All they did was point. Jesus is alive. He is not dead. 
They're called to be witnesses to the resurrection, something they saw with their own eyes. And Jesus wasn't some spirit or ghost, but was a tangible and could eat and drink with his disciples. And they will take these events and they will go tell others. The second thing that Jesus talks about in, in, as he spends those 40 days with them is that he teaches them about the kingdom of God. We don't exactly know what was taught completely, but what we do know is what the Bible talks about when it says the kingdom of God. Because the Bible defines that for us. It is not some sort of political or military kingdom, but the present spiritually directed reign of God. This kingdom is being built up with the transformed lives and entire cultures through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a narrow and a broad look when we look at the kingdom of God. Broadly, the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal, sovereign God over all things. Narrowly, the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. So there's two types of people. Those who reject God's authority and refuse to submit to him who are not part of the kingdom of God. Then there are those who are acknowledged, who have acknowledged the Lordship of Christ and gladly, gladly surrender to God's rule in their hearts. They are part of the kingdom of God. And we gladly do that because we know the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross for us. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world in John 18. And he preached that repentance is necessary to be part of the kingdom of God in Matthew 4. And in John 3, Jesus says that the kingdom of God must be entered into by being born again. When Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, he's constantly teaching them about the gospel. We have all sinned. And because of that sin, we are unable to be part of that kingdom of God. But Jesus Christ steps down from his throne to pay the price for our rejection of him, for our treason, for my treason, for your treason, for our sin, so that if anyone who believes and rests in the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again will be saved. And this isn't for a specific group of people. This is for all people, all languages, for all who believe that Christ died for his sins, of people of all backgrounds, no matter how dirty your sin, how dirty you think your sin is, really. And maybe he goes, maybe Jesus goes back to prophets like Ezekiel or, or Jeremiah to show God calling all nations to himself and building a kingdom for himself. And maybe Jesus is in Amos and, and other prophets showing how he will call all nations to himself. And the disciples are not to take that message. They are to take that message because the king has risen from the dead and he ascends to his throne and he sends his power into the lives of his disciples and not only enables them, but also and it gives them the strength for them to speak openly of him and to offer free entry into the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. This is a kingdom that will one day be shown as uncontainable in time and space with King Jesus' return. We see that even now. Every single time someone tries to contain the kingdom of God, what happens? It bursts through. Nothing can stop the gospel. We're foolish to think we can history over and over again. I read this not too long ago about the church in Iran. 
This is one of the most oppressive nations in the world. It's illegal to be a Christian. You put it, get put into jail for that. The church there is bigger now than it was back in the 80s when it was free. In verse 4, we see that Jesus tells his disciples after he has been around for 40 days, taking any doubt to wave that he is truly alive. And we see again back in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus showed himself to more than 500 people. You ever try to come up with a consistent story with two people? Do you know what the consistency of the gospel is? Christ died for our sins and rose again. 500 people have the same story. For those of us who are married, how hard is it to tell the same account of one thing that happened over summer vacation? But here it's consistent and constant. Christ died. Not only did he die, but he's alive. And he did. He did all those things. And after that, he gives his disciples instructions. He, he orders them to not depart from Jerusalem. And you've got to ask yourself, why? To give them a gift, a fulfillment of a promise that was made. In Luke 3, verse 15, it says this, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, Jesus, is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing forks is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to bring, sorry, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Which is echoed again in Luke 24. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, as Jesus says. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is a gift that was promised by the Father that a new and greater empowering of the Holy Spirit would happen. But in verse 5, we see that this baptism in the Holy Spirit is different than what John was baptizing. See, John baptized with a baptism that was about repentance. It's about showing that there's a turning in their life, a turning from what was an old way to a new way. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not me saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin and continuing to live in the same way I was. Repentance is a turning from my old life to my new life. And that's what John's baptism was. It was a sign that those people who were baptizing were repenting of their sin, of their rebellion against God, and turning their face towards him. It's actually, historically, Jewish people did it all the time as a very sign of repentance. John's baptism is with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus says there will be a different baptism with the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit? Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work that is done by the Holy Spirit to place the believer into union with Christ and union with one another. If I'm united with Christ, I'm united with others who are. I was just having this conversation with someone else this morning. The Holy Spirit in me cannot hate the Holy Spirit in you. That makes no sense. 
but it unites us with Christ and therefore unites us with each other, other believers in the body of Christ at that moment of salvation. This isn't a separate event in one person's life. When God calls you to himself, you begin to be baptized in the Holy Spirit right away. It's not that separate occasion, and all Christians have received this baptism because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to unite us with Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12. For just as one body is one and has many members, are all the members of the body through many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice that he says all Christians. Not a select few. Not at a different time. One time. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and gives us a new heart that enables us to believe, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's how Jesus, in the Gospels, when he says, it would be good for me to leave, that's what he's saying. No longer is there some uh, Jesus just walking with you, God the Son. Now God is with you all the time, which is terrifying too which means he sees everything, by the way. Every thought, every word, every act of gossip, every maliciousness. And what the amazing thing is about that is he still saved you. See, the gift of the Holy Spirit is important. I like gifts. You? I like them. Yeah. It's my love language, I'm pretty sure. But you know what's the problem with most gifts? You get a shirt or a pair of socks or some underwear or whatever, or a toy, they all wear out and break. They do. Unless you're like my dad who continuously sews up his socks. Sorry. The Holy Spirit, but this is a gift that is forever. It never goes away. At the moment of salvation, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit within you that will be with you for all times. It will always be there. Our problem is that we often grieve the Spirit, and that's a whole other sermon, but we often can do things against that. But here, the Holy Spirit works in the Christian life. It helps us. As John 14 says, the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian, which means he seals the Christian until the day of redemption. He seals us. Like if you were uh, jarring. My wife does some jarring with like peppers and, and tomatoes and stuff. That's essentially what our garden is. It's hot peppers and tomatoes. We tried corn. It didn't work. Um, so if you have some advice about that, I'll be willing to take some. But when you seal it, when you seal that jar, it's sealed. It's good for a while. But there's nothing nastier than when that seal doesn't break or breaks or it doesn't take, and then you kind of put it on the shelf and you start smelling something. You're sealed. The Holy Spirit seals you as a Christian. Upon that day, until the day of redemption, until the day that we go and, and, and Jesus comes back, as we will get into, and we ascend to heaven, and we get to spend eternity with him forever, 
He seals you until that moment. Which means that it's irreversible. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. He guards and he guarantees the salvation of the one he indwells. The Holy Spirit also helps a Christian to pray. Did you know that? Romans 8. He intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You ever trying to pray and you just don't know what to say? The Holy Spirit regenerates and renews the Christian. The, the right at the moment of salvation. Romans 6, 3 says that the Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit, he comforts us. He gives an overwhelming hope and gives all joy and peace. With all of that, it is also the Holy Spirit who is the one who convicts the unbeliever of their need of a Savior and their sin. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. He gives gifts that enable the Christian to, to be faithful to the mission of Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives the Christian the wisdom to understand God's word, even. You ever talking with someone who doesn't know Christ, who's not a Christian, and you're reading it, and they're like, just not getting it. I'm like, I, what do you mean you're not getting it? It's so simple. That's why. And all these are all these not something that the disciples, those 12 disciples, as they're standing there with Jesus, watching him ready to go up to heaven, to his Father, to this throne, is this not all the things that those 12 people standing there are going to need? Or is that not all what we need? It is a gift. And empowers the people of of Jesus to spread the message about Jesus. So to sum it up, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work that is done by the Holy Spirit to place the believer in union with Christ and into union with believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation, and that trickles into all areas of our lives, enabling us to do the mission that God has given us. It's interesting because when we look at Acts, we see a pattern that comes through at the same time. When it comes to conversion, it starts with repentance and forgiveness. Then there's water baptism and then reception of the Holy Spirit. That kind of all happened right at the same time. So that baptism that Jesus gives is one that will enable the disciples to accomplish what he will command in verses 7 and 8. And we will see examples throughout Acts of the Holy Spirit working in and through the people of God as they are the means that God uses to fulfill the mission of Jesus to spread the message about Jesus. This is all that Jesus is doing in these 40 days with his disciples. He's proving he is alive because they're going to be witnesses of this very act, this very event. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead... Nothing matters. I may as well just go home. But he did, proving he is alive and preparing them for the promise of the Holy Spirit that will enable them to go and tell the message about Jesus that he did die and he did rise from the dead. One of the most amazing uh, points of this is in just in Acts 2, the chapter over with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here's Peter, not that Peter, another Peter, Here's Peter, the Apostle Peter, and just a short few weeks before was denying Jesus three times. And now, and by the time chapter two comes around, he's standing before a bunch of people that he was actually afraid of a few weeks ago, boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And not only boldly saying that, but also saying to that crowd that you are the ones that crucified him. See what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of Peter? Look at what he's done in your life. How he enables you to do these things. I think even about myself, I was a kid who cried in front of people. And to be honest, I still get terrified. Holy Spirit, give me strength. He spent 40 years, 40 days, sorry, plus three years teaching them all these things. And now he promises that he will send the Holy Spirit to them as he prepares to leave them. And in verses 7 to 11, we see well, Jesus begins to empower his people, his disciples. Have you ever heard the term sink or swim? It's a great term. And it's amazingly how often we use it. We're so mean as people. We're not going to train people. We're going to just throw them right into the job and say how they go. Yeah, that always works well. And our argument is, it happened to me, therefore we can do it to other people. By the way, that's called pride. So repent of that and turn away. But it's the idea that we give people a task that is beyond them without the training or the power and the expectation that they will succeed in that task without the training and without the power. It's like someone coming to me and saying, all right, go crochet. I'm like, no idea. I don't even know what a crochet needle looks like. I'll be honest. But that's what would happen. You got... 24 hours to have a blanket ready or something like that. Another way of putting it is throwing them into the deep end. That's not what Jesus does here. You notice that. It's, it, not only does he spend 40 days with them, teaching them and being patient with them and walking with them, as you will see, he also empowers them to accomplish what he tells them to do. And I think sometimes we look at these verses and go, oh man, that's a deep task. Maybe I'm not really ready for that. But Jesus has equipped us by the Holy Spirit to do these things. In verse 6, the disciples have spent 40 days with Jesus where he has proved them that he's alive and talked to them about the kingdom of God. And we don't know what was happened, as we said, but Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking this question that comes up here in verse 6. It's a question that comes out of passages, like in Ezekiel 37 or Isaiah 49, where God will take multiple nations together and make them into one. So when we take the background of the Old Testament, and because of the context is king, right? we can see this is a legitimate question. To be honest, when I first read this over without really thinking about it, I was like, man, these disciples are just not getting things. But there's history here that we need to apply. When you look at verse 7 and how gently Jesus redirects the disciples, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, the disciples are thinking about when the kingdom of God is coming. That's consummation. The final establishment of the kingdom. So they're thinking about a specific time and event, but I just love how Jesus reacts to this question. It's like he's taking them gently by the face and redirecting their eyes back to where they should be. 
And Jesus takes their eyes off of a specific day and instead of focuses on the situation that is right now that, ca- that came out of this resurrection. The kingdom is being restored and will continue to be restored as the Holy Spirit promised uh, coming happens. It is the Holy Spirit who will empower the disciples to go and do what Jesus talks about in these following verses. And I reflect upon this a lot this past week because I grew up in a church culture that was literally obsessed with charts and graphs. They spent so much time trying to figure out when Jesus was going to come back. And Jesus himself specifically says, that's not your job. I grew up in a, in a culture where uh, every time the USSR was on the news, suddenly the world was going to come to an end. Yes, I'm old enough to know what the USSR is. I did see the wall fall. And I see you whispering too. (laughs) The church, the eyes of the church were so fixated on a specific time that they forgot about the mission that came out of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, it's not for you to know. And that's why the two men at the end in verse 11 say, he's coming back, but go. Maybe Jesus' Jesus' answer is what Ezekiel and Isaiah said as well. He says to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you, but you, those three little words are so important. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. On a side note, this does not mean that the earth is flat, so so please, it's ridiculous, stop. You ever seen the videos of texting and walking? I was at an intersection on Southdale and, uh, no, Bradley, sorry, Bradley and Wellington. It's going to Costco because that's what I do. And I'm a few cars back from the, from the lights. And then all of a sudden, I see this individual walking a, between cars during the red light. And they weren't even, A, they're not on the walk area. And B, they were on their phone the whole time. I'm like, you're going to die. And we can laugh about this, but this is a problem. I see it all the time. I do it too. I'm guilty of this as well. But according to a recent study done by the New York Stony Brook University over the decades, texting and walking has caused more than 11,100 injuries and over 5,000 deaths. Being distracted is a big problem. And we could joke about this. But when we fixate on things that we're not called to fixate on, when we worry about things that we're not to worry about, how easy is it to take our eyes off of the goal and the mission? A mission, in fact, that we are given that we can't even accomplish anyways because it's the Holy Spirit that does it. A church that is busy gazing up to heaven can veer off course. Yes, our hope is there. We were reminded about that right here, but the mission is here. Our hope should strengthen us for the mission, not distract us from it. 
Jesus will unite his people, and they will be the lights na- for the nations. He teaches us through his word and empowers by the Holy Spirit to be bold with the message. But listen to what Jesus says. The specifics aren't the job of the disciples or you and me. It's God's the Father. Whenever the consummation of the kingdom of God happens is something that only God knows. I don't know why we fixate so much on these things. But I do know that it can be distracting. I know a good thing can be distracting. The only God, only God will bring it about according to his divine counsel. This is about faith. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but Father only. Therefore, he continues on in chapter 25, watch therefore, for you never Uh, you know neither the day nor the hour. These verses do do create something, not only for the disciples that were here listening to Jesus at this time, but for you and for I. It's only by believing that this time is set by God that the disciples can go out with both confidence because they know that God is in control, but also urgency because God will bring everything, everything to his appointed end. For those who are in Christ, that allows us to rest a lot, doesn't it? You mean I just have a job to tell people about the things that I already saw and witnessed and experienced? You mean I only get to go and talk to someone, have coffee with them, or talk to the mother or the father at the park, or wherever I may be, and sit down with them and say, hey, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. What he's done for my life, and what he can do for yours, how he can heal your brokenness, how he can make you right with God give you purpose in your life. For those who are in Christ, that allows us to rest, but it also sends us out, and we go out with the boldness, declaring that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, telling people to repent, because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know. So Jesus sends them with his final words, and as we know, final words are important in someone's life. So listen to people's final words. But you will receive power, in verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in the Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you notice that it's not like maybe? It's emphatic. Will. This is what you're going to do. They will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what kind of power? Power to do what? to the empowerment to be gospel witnesses. And we will see many examples throughout Acts of this. And I hope and I encourage you to take time to read, if you haven't yet, but to read through Acts and see all that God does. How the Holy Spirit continues to grow. It is the great power of the preaching of God's word that is done by the Holy Spirit that brings an explosive growth to the church. And where will they take this spirit-empowered witness? Everywhere everywhere. 
And with that word, that last word, Jesus ascends to take his throne. And Luke is the, actually the only gospel writer, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that talks about this thing. So when he returns to heaven, it's very important to Luke. Why, you may ask? Because it shows that Jesus was not just a man. He was the Messiah, is the Messiah. And he's at the right hand of God, as Acts 2.33 says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, as Peter says in his sermon. And as Jesus ascends, there are these 12 guys in awe and wonder, going out to go accomplish what Jesus just said, right? No. They're staring up at heaven in awe and wonder, which is understandable, right? Because when was the last time you saw someone float up to heaven? Well, there's two other instances in the Bible. Think about all the things that were going through their heads. But here again is that reminder. Jesus still sends people to remind them of this. And I love communion for the same reminder as well that is given here. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you say him go into heaven, saw him go into heaven. See, during communion, it's funny how the Holy Spirit works within people because Peter was talking. I was like, Peter, you're stealing my lines. But I think we forget that when we're taking communion, we're reflecting upon what has happened. But there's definitely a look to the future hope that we have in Christ. He is coming back. Which again creates urgency, does it not? It creates urgency in a few ways. And one of them is if you're not made right before God, Jesus is coming back. Either you die in this place right now, not literally here, but either you die and you will face judgment, you will stand before the throne of God and he will give judgment and either he says you are his or not, or you are his. It gives us urgency as well as Christians because we have loved ones who need to know about Jesus. We all have them. We all have family members, parents, siblings, children, grandchildren, neighbors, co-workers who need to know the good news of Jesus Christ. So communion has a look back and a, and a, and a remember as much as I look back, I'm looking f- forward with hope. But until that moment, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go to the far reaches of this planet, starting by walking across the hall or streets or talking to the other parent at the park or the co-worker or the fellow student, whoever, whomever, and tell them that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again. Jesus coming back puts hope and an urgency in the same glass because he is coming back, which is great for us, right? I remember a friend saying to me, a a fellow pastor friend uh, in Toronto, he he says to me, one of the scariest prayers to pray is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because it's a hope for me, right? There's some days I just go through this world and I go, oh man, I'm so done. 
At the same time, Lord Jesus come quickly means everything is done. And if you're not in Christ, you're not spending eternity with Christ. You're spending eternity in hell. And the Bible is explicit in its description of that. A gnashing of teeth, eternal torment. Some theologians would say it's not the absence of God, but the act of pouring out of God's wrath for all of eternity. That's scary. It's not a party place with some sort of cartoon devil. It is a gnashing of teeth. Which are you? If you're a Christian, let us never stop assuming God has people in our city, in our neighborhood, who will respond when our own voice speaks the gospel. If you're not a Christian, I can't beg you enough, repent and believe. The gospel is summed up in this, that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Jesus tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem, it is there that they will wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. It is this power that leads to the, the disciples and the early church and you and me today to be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ has given. We often look at evangelists and think that they're the crazy ones. I do. I do. A friend of mine is an evangelist. I'm like, man, you're nuts. I'm being facetious, obviously. But I wonder if we call them the weird ones because they're the only ones that aren't glaring up at the sky. They've heard the mission and are going out to proclaim the message about Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again, but he will one day return. And that is both hope and urgency. In Christ, and here's the point, in Christ you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables and strengthens you to accomplish the mission of spreading the message about Jesus. So when we look at Acts, we see the message about Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the means that Jesus uses. And Acts shows how the actions and teachings of Jesus continue on. And there's a big responsibility here. But I don't want you to think it rests on your shoulders. The responsibility actually rests on Jesus's. Philippians 1, oh man, I pray this for myself and I encourage you to do it too. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Not maybe, not kinda, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Jesus began when he was here on earth, he will be the one that finishes we just get to be a part of it. What a great blessing that is to be, have a front row seat to God working in people's lives. You know what it's like when you see that light go on in someone? When they get it? When the gospel is just like, wow! That is amazing. And I love this because God says even all the way in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 43, verse 1, he says this, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
as he continues in verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. In Christ you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables and strengthens you to accomplish the mission of spreading the message about Jesus. Let us continue to pray that way. But let's not just stop with prayer. Let's not be the people caught gazing up to the heavens. Let us go and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, you have given us so many proofs. Jesus, you have given us so many proofs that you are indeed resurrected. And Lord, I pray that we would take the things that we have witnessed and that we would go out and we would declare that, that we would be faithful disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let us not, as, not assume that there aren't people here. Uh, let us not stop assuming that there are people in this city that you have called to yourself. Let us go out being faithful with the good news of Jesus Christ, declaring that you are indeed alive, that you have died for our sins, and that you rose again. Amen.